Exodus 27. Exodus chapter 27, please. And Spencer's going to put up on the screen a rendering of the tabernacle. As you know, we've started a series on the tabernacle. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take us to do it. Uh, we're going to go through it. We're going to go through uh, every piece of furniture in it. We said last week and shared last week, as we shared in weeks before, that uh, the uh, tabernacle is a picture of Christ. Jesus told the religious people and uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 6, He said, You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have life. But these are they which testify of me, but you won't come to me that you might have life. The very reason, the very Word of God was standing right in front of them and they missed Him by a country mile because they could not see the purpose for which the Scriptures were written. The Scriptures were written to reveal Jesus Christ. We've talked about in His redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan through His Son. And we've talked about how that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so as we look at every piece of the furniture and, and, and even the way it's situated and even the position of the tabernacle, we're going to see, we're going to see Jesus, and uh, it, uh, and we're going to go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, in order to uh, see everything as a whole. The um, the title of this message and the title of the messages will be following this. Several parts to it. This is just part one. Is not without blood. Not without blood. It's the title of this message. We're going to look first at uh, a little bit at the gate, the outer court of the tabernacle, and then we're going to look at the first pieces of the furniture, and we're going to do a just a brief sketch of it today because we're not going to have time. We're going to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper in a minute, but we're going to look at the bronze altar, and we're going to look at just a little bit of it, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait to finish the bronze altar. I'm here to tell you. The truth that just teems out of that is going to bless you. Oh my goodness. I've just about had to go outside and run around the building uh, while I've been studying this. If I wasn't so tired, most of the time I would have. But um, we're going to go look at these. And I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to switch me over to the white ones, Spencer. We're over there? And the white mic? We'll go back and forth and look at this and look at some of the elements of it. Uh, is that it? Is it on? Okay. And we'll look at some of the elements of it. But I want to... Uh, I want you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, and I want you to look at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. The Bible is a bloody book. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness or removal of sin. As we look in the tabernacle, we see it was a bloody place. And now that we're participating this morning in the Lord's Supper, like I said, what a beautiful morning uh, for us to be looking at all this truth. But in the book of Hebrews, we hear, we see teaching throughout the book of Hebrews about the tabernacle and what it really meant and, what it, and who it was pointing to. But look in verse 7 of chapter 9. It's talking about the high priest going into the holy, the most holy place once a year in order to offer sacrifice and spread the blood over the mercy seat on behalf of the people's sins. And look what it says. This is where the title of the sermon came from. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year 
not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. You can't enter into a relationship with God through his Son without trusting in the blood that was shed at Calvary. There is no other way. And now we're going to look at our text this morning, and it's going to come from Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. Now, in reverence for and respect for God's precious word, will you stand with me if you're physically able as we read it? Exodus 27, <clears throat> verses 1 through 8. It says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and the height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings as its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway of the altar. That's going to be real important. Real important. Next Sunday. Midway, that grate was put midway in the middle of the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. You may be seated, please. Thank you for standing in reverence for the Word of the Living God. And that is indeed the Word of the Living God. When we look at the tabernacle, and I know that this can't be discerned on the tape, but when we look at the tab tabernacle, I just want to point out a couple of things to you. There are essentially three major parts to it. The first part is the outer, outer court. And I know this is small, but the first part is the outer court. And then the second part here that's uncovered so that we can see what's within it is comprised of two parts. The first part of that is called the holy place. And then the second part, and you enter in where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, is called the most holy place. So you have the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. Now, God, when He gives the pattern of the, the tabernacle, He starts from the most holy place and works out. That's from God's perspective. That's where everything starts. God in His presence. This cloud represents what's called the Shekinah glory of God. It's His presence. And He comes down and meets with His people because at the, in, the, in the most holy place. Now, we're starting the other way around because we're coming from man's perspective. Okay, We're going to go through a journey and we're going to take each spot at this tabernacle and we're going to see the work and ministry of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our High Priest, and as God Himself. Okay, You'll look and see here 
I don't want to get bogged up in the details, but just to give you some kind of perspective, I started to go measure the gym this morning, and I forgot my ruler. I don't know how big the gym is, but it's bigger. This tabernacle is bigger than that gym, but I was trying to get a perspective on it. But anyhow, it's 150 feet long across here, and it's 75 feet wide across here. 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. It is, it is in the middle, it's positioned in the middle of the camp of the Israel, uh, the Hebrew children. Estimates are there were anywhere from 2.5 to 3 million of them, and they were camped around here. And they would move it wherever God told them to move it, because they were going wherever God told them to go. It took some 8,500 people to move this. So 8,500 people in the camp were involved in moving it, because this is not just curtains, these are heavy boards. And it had to be meticulously placed together. Now you're thinking, probably like I did, where in the world did they get all the materials to do this? You know where they got them from? They took them from Egypt. Now just to give you the biblical reference, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, it records that God gave them favor with the Egyptians. And when God told them to be able to ask for some of their metals and some of their precious metals the, he gave them so much favor that the Egyptians did be beyond whatever they asked for and so God gave them everything they needed in order to make all of this when they, from their trip from Egypt now basic typology how many of you have ever seen a preview for a movie surely every one of you preview a preview of a movie and what they do is they show you snippets two or three minutes worth of the best parts of a movie in order to whet your appetite and convince you to spend money to go see it. And sometimes you can go see the movie and the previews were far greater than the movie was. Well, these previews are not nearly as good as the movie because what God's doing is He's giving us a preview of coming attractions. He's whetting our appetite for what He would one day do through the new covenant through His precious Son. Amen. And so here we go. We have the, we have the uh, shape of the tabernacle. And then on this side over here, you see the red right there. That was the gate of the tabernacle. Now, real obvious, real obvious, but let's talk about it for just a minute. Because in this day, an age of ecumenicalism, and that's probably wasn't said right, but it was the best thing I could do. In this age of that going on, all the faiths seem to be bleeding in together. Like we're all just one. And there's, there's one God, but there's many ways to God. And if you choose Christianity, that's just your way. If somebody chooses another way, that's just their way. But they, the destination is all the same place. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you'll notice, there's only one gate to get into this tabernacle. Only one. There are not gates positioned around here. And that's not just fabric right there. There were boards. So you couldn't crawl or fare it under. Like I had a Dotson one time that would crawl out of our fence all the time. And I'd think, how in the world did she get through that hole? But anyhow, it's a joke. Okay, anyhow, uh, there's only one gate right over here. This gate always pointed to the east. No matter where they put it, they would always position the gate to point to the east. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Praise the Lord. Because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, our Lord is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. So it's always positioned to be facing where the sun's coming up. And when Jesus walks into Jerusalem and sits at his rightful place on the throne of David, what gate is he going to enter through when he walks in there? Whoo, hallelujah. The eastern gate, amen. 
And listen, there's only one way in. Can anybody think of a verse that goes with that, that there's only one way to get in there? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a good way to heaven. Jesus is not a good mediator between us and God. Jesus is not a... He doesn't represent a truth. He is the truth. There is no other way to God between... Uh, between and, and there's no other mediator between us and God except the man, Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so, He's not a suggestion. He's not a good way. And that makes every other way invalid. Every other way is heresy. Every other way is a lie. Every other religious system, every other religious philosophy is always about man trying to appease his guilt by working his way to favor with God. Somehow or another. A system of works. That I can dress myself up and somehow or another I can be good to merit divine favor. And the message of the Bible is that that is absolute heresy. That God is a holy God. And He is far removed from you and I because of our sin. And the only way to merit God's favor is to put trust in the only one who had His favor. And that's His blessed Son. Amen? Alright, so we go in here. There's only one way to get in. Incredibly important. And when you come in, you face the first thing you face is this right here. We're going to put a bigger picture of it here. And the first thing that you would face when you come in that court will be the brass altar. Don't let that throw you. It's also called the brazen altar in Scripture. And it's also called the bronze altar. Bronze is a strange... Bronze is an interesting... Uh, there's an interesting typology or, or picture that bronze goes with in the Bible. I don't know if you recall, but when Jesus is seen in Revelation, He reveals Himself in Revelation, His feet are shining like what? Bronze. Bronze is to indicate God's judgment. God's judgment. And so when you walk in, this is the first thing you see. It's square. We just read the instructions about building. It's square. It's seven and a half feet this way, seven and a half feet this way, seven and a half feet that way, and seven and a half feet that way. It's four and a half feet high right here. And this is the place where the sacrifices will be offered. And you would have priests all throughout the court. And by the way, I want to let you know something. This is precious. That court was always open. That court was always open. You know what the Lord said about that? He said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. It was always open. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that there's room at that gate and there was room at that gate for you? Hallelujah. And He didn't shut it down. God doesn't go to sleep. The Bible says He never slumbers. God never sleeps. The door has been kicked open to heaven, made perfectly clear through His Son. Hallelujah. 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 What does it say at the end of the Bible? You know what? We'll get into this later. The first recorded words that man ever said to God in the Scriptures. Now, this is now not I'm talking about God saying, God speaking in the beginning. I'm not talking about Genesis 1-1. That's God speaking to man. The first thing that man ever said to God, you know what it is? Adam. You know what he said? First thing he ever said. 
He said, I heard you in the garden. And I was naked. And I was ashamed. And I hid. Paraphrasing. That's the first thing that man ever said to God recorded in Scripture. You know the last thing that man ever said to God recorded in Scripture? Even so come Lord Jesus. We went from hiding from Him to begging Him to come. Something changed, amen? Something changed because there was a bridge built, Alex. There was a bridge built through His Son, amen? Hallelujah, hallelujah. And so we go into the court, we see that. The first thing that you would see is the brass altar, bronze altar. And that's the first thing that you saw when your eyes were opened up to God's salvation through His Son was the altar, the cross, the place at which He was sacrificed. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. God, let me just tell you this. I'm reluctant to say this because I get misunderstood about this a lot. Don't you listen to this for a second. It's a wonderful analogy. When Bill Clinton was running for President of the United States, he was running against a president, George Bush, who earlier that year had lots of popularity. Do you remember why? He was popular because we had successfully run Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And he was riding high on some very high approval ratings. But then the economy began to take a turn. And you know our God at America. Money. And so they vote, people vote their pocketbooks. That's absolutely true. And so the economy began to take a dive. And along with it went his approval rating. And so when Bill Clinton tried to take him out, they used to have this saying that they would write. Every time his campaign, I heard one of his campaign pundits say this one time. Every time they would get in a strategy meeting or every time that they would ever get together and they would talk about their strategy to defeat George Bush, they would put one phrase up at the top. You know what it was? It's the economy, stupid. In other words, what he was saying was, is the only place this guy is vulnerable is the economy. And no matter what he wants to talk about, if he wants to go back and celebrate the glories of his foreign policy in Kuwait, just turn to the American public and look him in the camera and say, are you better off than you were one year ago? And bring it right back to the economy because he's vulnerable there. Now let me tell you this, Christians. God would never call us stupid. But don't you forget this. In our war against the enemy, just right on the top of your heart, it's the cross, son. Because that's where the enemy is vulnerable. That's where he was taken out. Don't forget the cross. I heard a guy preach a beautiful message the other day on stewardship, and he spent 45 minutes on this glowing message on stewardship, how to make your finances better, and how to get God to give you back everything, all this other stuff, and went through all of that. And he didn't say not one word about the cross, not one word. If preaching doesn't involve the cross, it's not preaching. It's a therapeutic session to make people feel better about their sin. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that matters. That's all that matters. And so when you walk in there and you see the brass altar, you see Jesus hanging there, bludgeoned, blood red, falling over His face. Because the Bible says in Leviticus 17.11, there's life in the blood. And so that's what He shed for us. And so that's the first thing you see. It's open all the time. There's only one way in. And the first place you see is the bronze altar. Can I say this before we have the Lord's Supper? I've never seen in studying this something about the bronze altar. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share it with you next Sunday, but I'm telling you right now, you don't want to miss it. It's going to bless you. I'm telling you right now, I, I grow more impressed with Jesus every day. Not because He's more impressive. It's because I'm beginning to learn Him and know Him better. And God gave us all of this just to see His blessings.
His blessed Son. Amen. He's the Son of Righteousness. He's coming again. Do you know Him? Do you know I love the song? I'm old enough to reflect back on stuff like this anymore. The way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. It's sweet to know as I onward go. The way of the cross leads home. That's never changed. Amen. What a beautiful entry into the Lord's Supper. Two things I want you to take away from this as we go through the study of the tabernacle. Two things. When you see the blood, and this was an incredibly bloody place, and we're going to get into the gory details of it, not to be gory, but to communicate what God's trying to communicate to us, and that is God's disposition towards sin and His great love for sinners. Because see, every time somebody stood at their tent and they saw smoke rising from this altar, that's what they thought of. God hates sin. But He sure does love sinners. He hates sin. And friend, I don't care how unpopular this is, it doesn't matter what the spirit of the age would say, He hates sin. And I'm here to tell you, He will judge it. He's a just God, but He's also a Savior. Amen? And the only way to escape His righteous judgment, which is coming, is the perfect righteousness of His Son. Amen? Aren't you grateful for that? Can we take the Lord's Supper with unadulterated, pure-hearted joy and gratitude this morning? Can we take it in the sense that God is serious about sin? That God does judge sin? He doesn't ever look up. There's never been a sin that's been committed that God overlooks. Never. Not even yours if you're a Christian. Because what He did was He didn't overlook it. He just placed it on His Son. But he didn't overlook it. None of them get overlooked. It's all mercy for the believer. It's all justice for the unbeliever. You take the pick.